Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the very first verse of the Bible. Shouldn't be too difficult to find today. Turn with me, please, to Genesis 1-1 in your Bibles or on your devices. As you're doing that, I want to invite the rest of our church family worshiping in the Family Life Center to uh, turn also in your Bibles or on your devices to the same as we continue our study. And as you're finding your way there, um, Glenn, it's irresistible, the comments that I need to make. Uh, So the organ is out today. 5,500 pipes, a magnificent capacity in this instrument that we get to experience every Sunday. And you say, it all comes down to one tiny wire. And, and, and do I e- need to even finish this sermon thought, right? You and I are created with just as much extraordinary, magnificent capacity. We, we are to be instruments of praise day by day by day. And yet it all comes down to one connection that you and I sustain and maintain and cultivate and nurture. And that one connection is a relationship with our Savior, an intimate relationship with the God who knows us and loves us and and works on us and makes us more and more into his own image the further along we go, right? So today, I want to invite you in the context of worship to consider that even as we study passages of Scripture, all kinds of instruments of praise we are. But if we speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels and have not love, we are but a clanging cymbal and a crashing gong, right? Or something like that. So today, I ask you to turn with me to Genesis 1.1 so that the Lord may work on the connection that we have with the one who can make of our lives something beautiful. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. For today, we stop our study there. So may God now add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the doing of God's word. Let's pray together. And God, even as we focus on just These two verses of your word, we pray that you would so renew the mind today, that you would so revive the heart today, 
that you would so awaken the soul today that when we leave this place, it's not simply that we have sung beautiful songs. It's not simply that we have heard provocative sermons, but rather that every one of us can say that we have been transformed more into your very likeness. We pray as we study your word today that your spirit, your presence, your action in us and among us would do something that only only you could do even now as we worship you and study. Amen. Amen. So today we do continue, as David mentioned earlier, as Kep mentioned earlier, uh, we, we do continue this series on Genesis 1 through 11, in the beginning. And if you missed last week's sermon, I highly recommend that you go and watch it online, not because it's clever or impressive, but rather we lay a foundation last week. We laid a foundation that helps put a frame around our expectations over these next several weeks. Because last week we said that Genesis 1 through 11 is a different kind of Bible. It's not intending to be a history book or a science book, but it, it, it aspires to do something more than that in the human heart. It, it attempts to provoke and stoke the imagination of faith to consider that there is a God who is not only our maker, but one who is interested in being near us and with us to co-create a life that is worth living. And we said last week that these verses, these chapters of Genesis 1 through 11, well, they come from a particular context. They rise up out of a particular context, and it's important to recognize what that is. In fact, they're, they're late in the game. We believe that they arrive somewhere around the late uh, 6th century B.C., six centuries before the birth of Christ. And the reason I point that out again and will point it out throughout the rest of the study is so that you and I understand that the first audience of these writings, Genesis 1 through 11, they found themselves in a particular uh, contemporary context, a, a con contemporary situation that gave rise to these writings. It's just important to understand that Abraham, he didn't have these writings. Jacob didn't have these writings. When Joseph went down to Egypt, uh, estranged from his family of origin, he didn't have these writings. When Moses grew up in the home of Pharaoh, and then later delivered his enslaved people from Egypt. Moses didn't have these chapters. Later, when he leads them across the wilderness in Exodus, across into the promised land, and they settle the promised land, they didn't have these texts. In fact, when the king arose to unify the kingdom, King David, his son, even, they didn't have 1 through 11. They come around the year 587 is a critical year in which in 587, the Babylonians come and defeat Jerusalem. And they send the, the, the residents of Jerusalem into exile. And living in exile, in absolute uh, despair, isolation, brokenness, heartache, they had lost everything that meant anything. All of the 
social, theological, uh, political uh, constructs that had held life together were now, well, now they were dismantled. Everything had come unraveled, unglued. And nothing that ever meant anything mattered anymore. And in the midst of heartache and despair and suffering and great loss, they hear rabbis start to tell stories. And the rabbis would tell stories about the way things always have been, not just right now in the midst of exile, not just late in the game in the midst of our contemporary crisis of chaos, but the way things have always been, they would say. And the theologians began to do their work at writing down some of these stories. And they would say things like, you know, it's been that way since... Well, in the beginning... In the, in the beginning, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, well, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. Now imagine if you are an exile, how you hear that language being painted because the experience of exile was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep in all of them. And so out of this emergence out of this these first two verses of the book of Genesis there emerges hope but if or in order for you and and me to appreciate the sheer impact in order to be gripped by the true power of what these these ancient stories are attempting to do in us then I want us to focus on only these two verses for today And we're going to focus on them with these three observations. Three observations about these two verses. The first observation, beloved, is this. Begin where you are. The second observation is God is not finished. And the third observation is winds are still blowing. Begin where you are, God is not finished, winds are still blowing. First, begin where you are. Can I tell you one of the most interesting parts of verse 1 and 2 for me? Is that the Bible, especially right here in the verses that we just read a moment ago, the Bible does not attempt to prove the existence of God. It assumes it. The the Bible is not intent on describing why God exists or if God exists. The Bible assumes it in the beginning when God created the heavens and earth as if the matter is settled. And there are two words I want you to begin linking together the more we talk. The presence and the action of God are inseparable. When God is present, God is active. And in Genesis, we are introduced so are the exiles, to a God who is present and active despite all appearances to the contrary. What would it look like in your life right now, contemporary exiles as we may be? What would it look like if you mastered the capacity to assume the presence and action of God in your everyday life? 
I'm not talking about when you get to a crisis, somehow figuring out, well, how do I pray in order to get God to come in and help? Or what do I need to do and what do I need to read and how do I need to ask God to participate in this thing that's going on? But rather, what if you mastered the capacity to simply assume that God is already present and already active in ways that you cannot possibly fathom or recognize at the moment? Is this not why Romans 8 describes it this way, in all things, God works for good, for, for those who love God and for, for those who are called according to God's purpose. The presence and action of God are always alive. But what's intriguing to me as we begin to assume with the scripture that God is present and active What's intriguing to me is how this Bible begins. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. Do you recognize that it starts in a curious place? I had a professor in seminary in Richmond. He was my absolute favorite. He was, he was mesmerizing. He was so, so wise. And such a great scholar. His name was Samuel Ballantyne. And Ballantyne introduced, he was our Hebrew professor. He would not be proud to know that I have lost most of my Hebrew capacity, so don't tell him. But on one of the first days of class, we look at this sentence in Hebrew. This is the first sentence of your Bible. Keep in mind, it's read from right to left. So kind of right here to here, okay, moving this way. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamim vawet ha'eretz. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. But what's most intriguing, keep in mind as you read from right to left, is the very first word of the very first sentence. Bereshit. Bereshit is a word that literally means beginning. It's kind of a thought, a, a phrase packed into, shoehorned into one word, Bereshit. It's almost as if uh, the mood or the, the, the feeling, the impact of this first word of the Bible is intending to do something in the, in the mind or in the ear of the one reading it, Bereshit. It's almost as if you could imagine that all of the cosmic, divine, pent-up energy of God had been waiting for some time. And with no prelude, no warning, no slow drive up upon it, no long ramp, just from all of a sudden, bereshit, as if to explode with God's energy. But the universe itself explodes with God's love and continues to expand from it. But what's even more magnificent about this first sentence and about this first word is really this first letter. It's the Hebrew letter bet. Take a moment and analyze the anatomy of this letter. Let's see where we are. Right about here. Check out the anatomy of the letter. Understanding you read from the right to the left. It's almost as if the the structure of the letter itself is trying to say something. It looks like a bracket, doesn't it? 
looks like a, a parenthesis, understanding that uh, what comes from behind it is not nearly as important as what follows it. Almost as if the very anatomy of the letter is saying we are closed off to all the mystery that was preceding this moment and the only thing that really matters is brashit. What's the implication? The implication is that from the very first letter of the very first word, of the very first verse, of the very first chapter, of the very first book of the Bible, the message is clear. Whatever it is that happened in your past is nowhere as significant or powerful as what can happen in your future. That beginning with this particular God, you can begin. Regardless of where you have been, you can start here. Think of how the exiles hear this verse. Regardless of what happened in 587 when you saw the temple smoldering in ruins, regardless of what came before, only that which is ahead, something new is beginning, Bereshit. No matter what is in your past, whatever level of brokenness or sadness or loss or rejection, no matter what level of sin, nothing that has happened before matters as much as what can happen right now with Christ moving forward. Is this why in Revelation chapter 2, we hear these powerful words coming? And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things brashit, new, begin again. Is this not also why we read Paul when Paul says these words about beginning again, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, if you are in this room, if you are in the Family Life Center, if you're listening online and something in you has felt like it's died and you've seen the high water mark of your life already and you don't know how to get unstuck from where you are, you need to hear that from the very first, the message is that this God is the one who specializes in beginning and you begin right where you are. Not regretting where you used to be, not fearing where it may take you, but you begin where you are because this God, as we're introduced in Genesis, is one who meets you right where you are but loves you too much to leave you there. Begin where you are. The second observation in these two passages, and we're moving at a, at a lightning pace now, aren't we? The second observation comes from the second part of the first phrase in this chapter, in this verse. The observation is this, God is not finished. God is not finished. It's interesting to me because we have different translations, and the translation that I typically use, New Revised Standard Version, it sounds like this. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, da, 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 and it finishes out. Maybe you have a different translation. Maybe it's the King James, and it reads something like this. In the beginning, God created, and it's more of definitive. It's, it's translated in a different way and from a different source. But what I find interesting is there is in the Hebrew here, many scholars will tell us, a dynamic going on. 
It's a dependent temporal clause. And it means that all the action depends on what happens after the phrase. And, and all that means is this. Literally, there is a way to translate this first verse of our Bible, and it sounds like this. In the beginning, when God began creating the heavens and the earth. Can you hear the nuance? Well, that has a significant impact, doesn't it? Because it implies that God is not finished. That God is still up to something. And, and our friends who study the stars tell us that, yes, this thing, and by thing I mean existence, <laughs> the universe is still expanding from some original Bereshit long ago. We're still expanding. But not only do I mean God is physically recreating and creating the world still as a perpetual act of God's love. Don't forget what David Bosch says about God, that God is a fountain of sending love. And that eternal fountain of sending love never stops sending love. And there is a sense in which God is continuing to create. But I'm thinking about an old hymn. Creator God, creating still. Do you remember this hymn? And this hymn, the first verse of the hymn reads something like this. Creator God, creating still, by will and word and deed, Create a new humanity to meet the present need. Do you realize that this is the whole, the whole point of following Jesus Christ? That in the body of Christ, we are meant to become a new humanity. That's why in the New Testament he's referred to in places as the last Adam. In other words, as God kept trying to start over and do this thing well, he found the one in whom it was done well. The last Adam was Christ, which means that he ushers in a new humankind, a new way to exist as mortals. And every person who follows Jesus Christ is a member of that new uh, humanhood Every person who says yes to a way of life that follows the way of our teacher, the way of Christ, well, in every human heart that yields, in every human heart that repents, in every human heart that says, I, I no longer want to be arrogant and prideful. I no longer want to chart my own way. I no longer want to think only about me. I no longer want to be the Lord of my own universe, but I yield myself before the authority of your great love that never ends. Every heart that yields to Christ is a heart in which God creates the world all over again. It's a new humanity. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, these words, he says, so if anyone, and anyone means anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away, and see, look, behold, check it out, everything has become new. If there were ever a time when the world needed a new humanity, it is now, beloved. A time in which we, we learn to see one another the way that God designs us to see one another, to live and to do what God has designed us to live and to do. It's almost as if 
we could use another Eden. It's, it's almost as if the call to follow Christ in this new humanity is to live a kind of Edenic vision of what it looks like to be with one another on this planet. Where we see, what, and, and when I say Edenic vision, maybe I should clarify, I mean the pre-fig leaf Eden in which divisions were not introduced yet. Distinctions were not introduced yet. In which God demonstrates the possibility of a community, a new humanity, in which we, we live and abide out of the resource of love that had created the place. Maybe, maybe that's the point. Maybe this is why Paul says, if you're in Christ, heads up. You're on the hook. Watch out because in Christ, this new way of being human means that we don't think of each other the same way. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but all who are in Christ are beloved. And we begin to see that all the world that God has made has intrinsic value because God has made it. And I'm not just talking universal. Now, I'm not just even talking about in Christ, God's not finished. I'm not just talking about God's not finished creating the world on a universal scale. I mean on a personal scale. I mean in your life. I mean the thing that got started but then got derailed. The thing that, that you thought was going to happen and it fell apart. The, the crisis that you're facing, the, the place where you're stuck. I hear the words of Paul in Philippians once more. That I'm confident in this, that, that the one who began a good work in you, the one who, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the second observation I make today is not only this, not only you begin where you are because God meets you there and loves you too much to leave you there, not only do you begin where you are, but God is not finished with the world, nor with you. The third observation, last one. Winds are still blowing. Winds are still blowing. The verse again, as we keep it out in front of us, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. To the ancient mind, before anything ever existed, you know what existed? Water. A watery kind of chaos. That was in the ancient mind before anything existed. Water existed before the earth and all of its hues of greens and blues. Before the 10,000 species of birds that we know about. Before the 27,000 species of fishes in the sea. Before we, we clumped our planet along with a few other planets into what we call kind of our neighborhood, um, a, a solar system. And before that solar system joined with, say, 200 billion other solar systems to create uh, a kind of neighborhood HOA <laughs> called uh, 
the galaxy. And before that galaxy joined with 500 billion other galaxies to form what we call the known universe, the ancients said there was water. In the Bible and in the neighborhood of uh, those who wrote and handed down these stories to us, water represents chaos. Water in the ancient mind represented loneliness, isolation, fear, abandonment, suffering, detachment, chaos. And, and I, I understand because I can't swim very well. <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about the time I took my family scalloping? We went with some friends in Florida. He had a boat. We went over to St. Pete. We went scalloping. You know, when you scallop, you, you, kind of, you kind of park or anchor the boat in some shallow water, eight, nine feet or so, and you look over the bay, and it's just gorgeous. I mean, just like glass, just gorgeous as far as you can see. Good, nice, clear water. And, and, and the point is to get out of the boat, and you, you, you snorkel. And as you're snorkeling, you're floating on the top of the water. Well, I have a hard time floating. I, I sink like a rock. And so it takes work for me to stay alive. And I'm working hard to stay on top of the water. But then you look down, and when you see a scallop opened up like a clam, opened up on the bottom, you, you swim down, take a deep breath, swim down. You grab it, you put it in your bag, and it closes up, you know. But I spent most of my time hanging on to the ladder on the back of the boat. Laura and the boys are having a great time. The family we were with having a great time. Every once in a while, they'd come up for air. Hey, Dad, how you doing? Great. Having a blast. And they'd show me their bag full of scallops. Like, Look what we got. Great. Hey, did you get any, Dad? Where are yours? Oh, it's, this is too heavy. I just a lot. And I... One time, I was down in the middle of the water, and I kid you not, I look over, and there's a stingray about four feet in diameter, the wings, looking at me. I just about walked on water. <laughs> Another time, Laura and I are there, and we're down just underneath the water, or we're, we're uh, uh, snorkeling on top, and, and I, I kid you not, about four or five feet below us, two barracuda with those jaws, those ugly jaws sticking out, looking up at me as if to say, what, what? Well, needless to say, water for me is chaos. The Babylonians knew it too. The Babylonians have a creation story similar to our story. We read about it in the Enuma Elish. The Enuma Elish tells the story of a great battle that takes place between Marduk, the storm god, and Tiamat, the goddess of chaos. And Marduk defeats chaos, and watch this, interesting. Chaos splits open, her body splits open, and out of chaos emerges the heavens and the earth. Kind of familiar. And keep in mind, as exiles are hearing Exiles are familiar because they're in Babylonian exile. They're familiar with some of these stories. So as they begin to tell their version of the beginning story, there is a nuance. Because yes, it's out of chaos that the world's emerged. 
But we have a part to the story that's a little unique. Because the Hebrews understood that while the waters of chaos preceded everything that was made, there was a wind from God that swept over the waters of chaos. To the Hebrew mind, they knew what the wind of God was. The word in Hebrew is ruach. Ruach is a word that means wind or spirit or breath. Ruach is the same word that's used later in chapter 2 when God, oh, this is beautiful, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, or at this rate, we'll get there in a couple of years. It's the ruach, the wind, spirit, breath of God that in chapter 2 bends down, and as God creates the first mud man, he breathes the ruach of God into the mud man and makes of the mud man something more than the mud man. And he becomes the image of God. So the wind of God, the spirit, the breath of God is this image-making capacity of God. The capacity of God to see something that doesn't exist and infuse it with so much of God's divine love that it animates with power and life. And the image is that before anything existed, there was nothing but chaos. But over the chaos was hovering this divine breath. And you know the rest of the story. It begins to sweep across the face of the chaos and the waters separate. And, and God separates things, wet things from dry things and light things from dark things. And life emerges, right? And I'm here to tell you that whether you know how to identify the chaos in your life or if you're even experiencing any of it at all, you know someone who is. In the midst of chaos, we don't sometimes recognize the presence of God, but we hear from our ancient sisters and brothers that there is no measure of chaos in which God is not near because although it seems as if God is absent from our chaos, God is always hovering over it, attempting to see something in the chaos that you can't see, like uh, worlds. So what do I do if I, that's where I am and life is falling apart? What do I do in the meantime? Well, I don't know, maybe nothing. Maybe the only thing you do is in your prayer, confess, God, I recognize that I can barely swim here, that I am sinking in, in, in the waters of my own fear and dismay, my, my own dis despair, but I choose to believe that you are hovering over the waters, the dark, the deep, trying to see something in this that I can't see. So let your wind blow in me so that something emerges, so that order comes out of this chaos. Can I tell you what that kind of looks like? I've told you this story before, but it was like five years ago, so some of you will not remember it, and some of you uh, weren't here at the time, and some of you remember it but have slept since, so here it is. When Laura and I lived in Richmond, there was quite famously a story told about the day that Guns N' Roses came to concert. You know Guns N' Roses, right? Uh, GNR. If you know Guns N' Roses, you know the name of their lead singer. Somebody say it out loud. One, two, three. Slash. That's right. Slash. That's the guy. That's the guy on the screen. Slash. 
That's what I meant. Yeah. What did I say? I meant lead guitarist. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad some, you are listening. A bass player would know that. Thank you. Slash is the name of the lead guitarist. Not the lead singer. That's Axel. Right? Thank you. So in Richmond, GNR comes to town. They, man, they put on a huge concert. They pack the place. There's music and sight and sound and lights and fog. Or we think that it was fog. You know? And they, they bring this, this 15-year-old kid up on stage. Something that they were known to do, bring a 15-year-old kid up on stage. And they strap Slash's guitar on him. This kid's never played guitar in his life. Doesn't know how to play guitar. The thing is hanging down around his knees. They adjust the strap so it's up a little bit more uh, in playing range. And they say to him before he has a chance to even protest, before he has a chance to say, I can't, I can't do this. This is not this beyond me. They give him a pick. And they say to him, now when we look at you and Axel gives you the cue and the lights are down on you and the spot hits you, you just take this pick. And you just have to strum as hard and as fast as you can strum. Just strum those strings. But I can't, no, don't worry about it. Just strum. You just do your job. Strum. And so before he could even protest, the lights went down. The music swelled. It crescendoed into that one moment in the song. The spotlight hit him. And he took a deep breath and just began to strum. And just before he started strumming, slash comes up from behind him, grabs the neck of the guitar, and starts to... And all this kid's doing is this right here, strumming, strumming, and suddenly he's a rock star and doesn't even know it, and, and Slash, oh, he's making music out of madness. He's bringing order out of chaos in the crowd. It goes crazy. They take the guitar off. The kid is like, yeah, I'm a superstar. I'm a superstar, you yeah. And this is exactly what the, the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 are attempting to say and to do when the exiles hear it and when you and I hear it. There will be seasons in which you have no clue how to play this music. Can we just confess that? You don't know how to play this music some seasons. You don't have to. You just strum. You strum faithfully. You get up and you live and you breathe and you do the things that your master and Lord have told you to do. You live in a way that is so closely related to his way that you have no fear. You just strum and God comes up at just the right time. The imagination that is hovering over your chaos, attempting to bring order out of it, he comes up at just the right time and begins to make music out of your madness. It brings order out of your chaos. So for today, now that we've made it through two verses, <laughs> begin where you are. God is not finished. Winds still blow. Let's pray. Mm, most gracious and loving and attentive God. We recognize that in the midst of chaos, sometimes it's, it's very difficult to hear your voice. It's difficult to recognize your presence among us. But through your spirit, perhaps we can exercise some faith that, that you're doing what you can do. Show us how to do what we can do. 
Show us what it looks like to simply strum, to live by faith, and to trust in the grace that will make music out of our madness. Even this day, there is somebody here on campus, there is somebody for whom perhaps this is the best news they have ever heard. Someone who perhaps was ready to give up. Someone so stuck that they were enmeshed in the thing that had happened before. And yet, in, in this moment, you have spoken into all of us the possibility that you can make something new even out of their story. So we pray that you would invoke, provoke, stoke faith in somebody this day. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.